0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Poetry, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm usually a host of new books in psychoanalysis, but today I'm venturing into the world of poetry with an interview with Lauren Russell about her book Descent, published by Tarpaulin Sky Press in 2020. Lauren is the descendant of slave owners, she is also the descendant of slaves. Her book, Descent, is a hybrid work of verse, prose, images, and documents that traverse centuries as the past bleeds into the present. In addition to the book uh, we're talking about today, Descent, Lauren is the author of What's Hanging on the Hush, um, published by Asata Press, 2017. She has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, Cave Canem, and the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And her work has appeared in various publications, including the New York Times Magazine and the Academy of American Poets Poem A Day. She was assistant director of the Center for African American Poetry and Poetics at the University of Pittsburgh from 2016 to 2020. In August 2020, she joined the faculty of Michigan State University as an assistant professor in the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities and director of the Residential College's Center for Poetry. So welcome to the program, Lauren.
1: Thank you, Philip.
0: And so why don't you kind of introduce this book to us? And one way you might do it, there's a couple epigraphs at the beginning that um are really lovely. But however you want to do it, just sort of introduce us to this book.
1: Yeah, sure. I can start with the epigraphs. Um, so there are two. Um, the first one, which was there from a, from quite an early iteration, is from Eleni Sicilianos' Book of John. Um, and the Book of John starts with this really marvelous introduction. And this is pulled from that part. It matters that there are holes in a family history that can never be filled, that there are secrets and mysteries, migrations and invasions and murky bloodlines. These stories speak of human history. And I had that, um, I selected that quite early on as I was um, encountering all these secrets and mysteries and holes that could never be filled that I was attempting to write into um, in my own family history, the the story begins because I acquired a copy of the diary of my great great grandfather Robert Wallace Hubbard, who was a captain in Hood's Texas Brigade in the Civil War. And after the end of the Civil War, he went back to East Texas and had children by three of his former slaves, who were also half sisters. And one of them was my great great grandmother Peggy Hubbard. And as I was transcribing these 225 pages of diaries, I just became really fascinated by everything that he was leaving out. Um, And that epigraph speaks to holes that can never be filled. Um, And the second one I added later in the process, um, because I read the book later, which is from Saidia Hartman's Lose Your Mother. And this one is... I was determined to fill in the blank spaces of the historical record and to represent the lives of those deemed unworthy of remembering. But how does one write a story about an encounter with nothing? Um, And anyone who knows Hartman's work, she's also interested in gaps in the archive. Um, Lose Your Mother is specifically about the transatlantic slave trade and trying to to sort of recover the lives of people whose names have been erased, whose stories have been erased. Um, and that particularly spoke to to this particular idea of trying to to write into that space and capture captures the wrong verb. That's interesting. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to try to imagine Peggy's voice as a great, great as my great-great-grandmother, um, as a Black woman who left few records, um, so much of, of what I know from Peg about Peggy, it's either from the censuses. Uh, she appears on two, 1870 and 1880, and a few a few mentions in Bob Hubbard's diary where, you know, he mentions her as his cook. So, and that's all, and that's the only record there is. So, so that... Um, that was was encountering nothing was trying <laughs> trying to find this trace of of, of Peggy's life um and, and encountering nothing so that is the question of the book
0: yeah that's a a wonderful way to introduce it because there's kind of a poetic quality to how you're introducing it with this this the poetry of uh, uh, Eleni Sicilianos' Language, the secrets and mysteries, migrations and invasions, murky bloodlines. Um, so clearly, we're entering into sort of a poetic endeavor here, but but it it's kind of a historic endeavor um, where you're actually like looking into archives and things. So, how would you explain this book as poetry, history, what else? How so?
1: <laughs> um, well, I do think of it as hybrid, um, and it's actually, you know, says that on it, which I was very happy about on the back of the book. <laughs> um, I'm not a historian, and I took pains to note that in the, in the notes that I mean, I'm, I'm not trained as a historian, I'm trained as a poet, um, but I also think that allows for a certain kind of freedom because there's less allegiance to fact, um, and, it, and then that allows for those sort of holes to create space for imaginative work, Um, which in this case, I think is kind of a gift because there's there's only so much documentation of Peggy's life, as I said, and I can kind of imagine based on research into the lives of other enslaved, formerly enslaved women in Texas, what her life might've been like and how she might've talked but, I don't know. Um, and I think that having less allegiance to fact and more to imagination sort of creates an opportunity to do that kind of reparative work,
0: yeah, I think at the before you and I started talking, we we spoke briefly about, you know I was saying, is is this a history? And I think you said, no, it's not really it's not history. but um but it is history. it's not it's not factual history, but um, if it, it gives us some some sense of tr- some truth that's been about the past um, that's been brought to light in this book, we I guess we can think of it in his- history in that sense um, that it's um, disclosing truths about the past, um, even though they're not factual, but filling in the holes. Um, uh, it seemed like. It, is very important thing that history should be doing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like um, I think there's a good argument to be made that this is a historical work Um, and yeah, on a hybrid. And so hybrid, you said you were glad to see that on the back of, I think it's on the back cover. It calls it a hybrid.
1: It was classified as hybrid slash poetry slash memoir.
0: Ah, Oh Okay. Yeah, I think it's a really, um, for people who don't read poetry a lot, um, which is basically me, I think this is a really good way. Um, maybe that's why I'm doing new books and poetry today instead of my usual new books and psychoanalysis, because it's a good way to kind of, you, you end up immersed in poetry through this book without, but you're drawn in by this intriguing narrative and sort of um and the memoir aspect too um it really weaves together sort of you go sort of in and out of poetic passages um painlessly (laughs) you know because sometimes poetry can be hard for people who aren't really used to uh reading it often um Is there anything more you want to say about the hybrid nature? um...
1: Well, I mean, there's also, there's obviously images, um, documents, you know, pictures of archival documents, photographs. Um, And the narrative arc of the book is formed through this sort of memoir aspect. But I'm a little nervous about calling it that because it's not 100 percent factual either. Um, <laughs> but these sort of lyric essays that are are about my own life as the descendant slash researcher, my own contemporary life as I was um, researching my ancestors. And it, 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 the past sort of converged in the present in interesting ways, you know, as, you know, police violence against Black people continued as the Black Lives Matter movement grew as Donald Trump was running for president I sort of felt the pressure of the past was sort of that the, the present sort of is a direct result of the past or you know those things became um, mm-hmm. not as separate as I think I had gone into it imagining and so my own life and my own um, grappling with that history and with identity and you um, and race and legacy sort of became part of the project and became part of the story that weaves around Peggy's story, Bob's story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's really very, um, relevant in 2020. I don't know for especially like a lot of white people who sort of woke up and started like researching and learning a lot more about racism because we've been woefully and, um, criminally ignorant for too long. and so um, it feels very much like a book for 2020. When, when did you start working on this book?
1: 2013 um, oh. I got that was when I got the copies of the diary. It took me a year to type it. Um, so yeah, most of the writing I did between 2014 and 2017, but I'd written a little bit a few poems bef- in 2013. And um, and I continued sort of tweaking it right up until it went to the printer. So <laughs> so uh-huh. seven years. When did it go to the printer? I think like, it was more April 2020. I really oh. was like, I think I probably drove my editor nuts because I would keep <laughs> making small changes, <laughs> like uh-huh. right right up until you know the deadline to go to the printer. Uh
0: huh. Um there's in the beginning there's a genealogical chart something I've never seen at the beginning of a book of poetry um sometimes you see them in historical works but and it's really useful because first of all when you just start at the beginning of the book you look at it and go oh no who where did um you know you begin looking for where What was his name? Robert Wallace Hubbard, you pronounced it. That was your great-great-grandfather? Yeah. Okay, so he was the slave owner. He ended up, how do you say, having sex with three of his female slaves who are all half-sisters. So I started looking at the chart um, and then trying to figure out where you fit into it. And there's um, some interesting things in the chart where there seemed to be a – alliances between people marriage alliances where you wouldn't expect them to happen. But, um, so I guess you had to create this chart based on,
1: well, I created a very ugly one. I have to think that, um, Joel Coggins, uh, graphic designer made this look good. (laughs) Um, but I, yes, I did the research to create the chart.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, and then some of that re- research consisted in, you mentioned, spending a year typing up um, Robert Wallace H- Hubbard's diary, was it? And was it a handwritten diary or how did you, so did yeah. you have to sort of try to decipher his handwriting? Or?
1: Yeah. So that was a bit, and as I moved along, I, I got much better at understanding his handwriting. Um, so yes, it was handwritten and, and these are copies of a copy and the original is lost. So it, um, some of it, you know, some of it is just impossible, but I was for the most part able to type it.
0: <laughs> okay, so, so you spent a year um, <clears throat> before you even get to start writing the book um, laboriously typing. Was it a long diary or how many years of diaries did he keep?
1: So it was 225 pages, handwritten. Um, it was 1889 through 18, I want to say 1894. And then there was a sort of fragment of a diary from 1917. And he died in 1918. I think I'm remembering the years right. So um, yeah, so it was from two distinct periods. And the, the handwriting was was harder to read in the later one
0: hmm How interesting that he kept a diary. I wonder if that was common for um, men of his class kind of to oh, yeah. keep diaries.
1: I believe so. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is just about the weather. And, and, you know, he was a farmer. So a lot of it is about the weather and what they planted and um, who mm-hmm. came over, who visited. A lot of it is, um, you know, what completed tasks of the day. Hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And then um, let's maybe read reads. Have you read some more? Um, There's a a poem on page. Is it page page eleven? The whipper about a whipper wool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess this one kind of stood out for me because it was the first, maybe the first time I sort of realized, oh, I, this, is just a, this is more of a typical, what you, I don't know, a little bit more of a typical poem. And it sort of impressed me. And uh, I don't know, maybe you could read that one and then talk to us about it.
1: Sure. Heard a whippoorwill holler this morning for the first time this spring. Heard a whippoorwill holler, all hands choking cotton. Heard a holler, a whimper, heard a will whip her Will herd a whip, whip or will, will herd, herding hers, whipping herds, sowing oats, whipping whores, stripping cane o'er, whelped her, willed her, a well and a hold, dank of the dark, of the hell of the hold, choking cotton, caught in, a yoke and a pull, stripped and caned for, Heard her holler, caught her, held her hand to the, whipped out your, held her head to the, whipped out the billfold. Heard a whimper this spring. Choke door. Heard a holler, a hollowed out hold, whipped to a wheelbarrow, hell-bent toward a hole, ripped from a, wrapped in a, gut-wrench, sugar-hold. Question. So how did the women feel about this? Answer. Don't guess they had no say.
0: Hmm. Maybe we should, you could start with the question and the answer. Um, What, who, who, that was actually asked by somebody.
1: Yeah. um, My father's cousin, who's no longer living, unfortunately. Um, So sort of early in the process, I, was just asking him about, you know, about Peggy and about um, Peggy being my great-great-grandmother, about her sister, Priscilla. Um, And I I sort of asked, you know, how did they feel about this situation? And he sort of said, don't guess they had no say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which is, um, I don't know, such a wise answer. Um, And so that comes at the bottom. it it doesn't and i guess the link i made to why that was on that page with that poem was because of the whipping um and where i guess i'm assuming a lot of slave women were whipped including possibly your great great grandma peggy or great grandma great well i don't
1: know i mean the thing with the language so the language that was actually from the diaries that's in that poem was heard a whippoorwill holler this morning for the first time this spring, um, all hands choking cotton, sowing oats, stripping cane. And then the rest of it is me riffing off that language and it's sort of through the experimentation with sound um, and meaning um, with language that I was I was able to uncover these other resonances beneath the language. Um, so, so it was like a door <laughs> through association of sound through, um, I don't want to say word play cause it's very serious through word work, through working the words. Mm. And I guess I just put that there sort of intuitively. It also comes up in one of the, um, it comes up in one, in a lyric essay that appears a few pages later in the book where you actually get yeah. the conversation that it came out of. But um, yeah, I uh, Whippoorwill throughout the book sort of comes to stand, it, it appears, it, it reoccurs throughout the book and it, it comes to stand for um, sexual violence. And so I guess that was why that question, why I intuitively juxtaposed that, that Q&A at the bottom of that poem. I don't know if I'm making sense.
0: Yeah. Um, so... Did the, the, the line about the whippoorwill and the choking cotton, did that come from the diaries? Yes. Or, oh, wow. So that language was right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, slipping in a little bit of my other life as a psychoanalyst, there's there's a, a form of psychoanalysis called Lacanian, which pays very close attention to what the patient in the room says, the exact words they say. You don't listen so much to what they intend to say or mean to say, but... But the very the actual words, um, and I feel like that's what kind of what's happening here. You're taking these words and and finding associations to them, um, sometimes rather shocking uh, um, uh, associations. Like to begin with a whippoorwill, which whippoorwill, which is a, I guess a kind of a, an actual bird, right?
1: Yeah, and it sings whippoorwill.
0: Okay. <laughs> But then suddenly it just turns really dark um, in in some ways here, and when we in the context of choking cotton, I had never heard that expression. Is that?
1: I hadn't either, but it was in the diary. So mm. and I don't understand much honestly about farming or cotton cultivation. I probably should have looked. At, I don't. I don't honestly understand what that means. But uh-huh. it's a very yeah. evocative as an yeah. yeah as an expression. Um, kind of influenced by the poet Harriet Mullen, who does a lot of this um, punning and sort of associative, um, it's like getting it, associative riffing off language, uh, and she's influenced mm-hmm. by Gertrude Stein. So it is kind yeah. of a a way of working with language that's part of a, a tradition. Mm-hmm. But I did feel like in this case, it it was it was almost like revealing something beneath this sort mm-hmm. of very quotidian, very banal <laughs> report <laughs> report of like, you know, farming and hearing a whippoorwill that, that, that this happens in this context of this other history. It, it, mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of, I think, where, where I'm coming from. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. The, on the theme of sexual violence, I hadn't thought of that phrase exactly in terms of this book, but later in the book too, you, you talk about in, in Texas, there was a law that it was illegal How do you pronounce it? Missegnation? Missegnation. Okay. For a white man to marry a woman of color, or I guess, or a vice versa woman, that was illegal. But it it wasn't illegal for a white man to have sex with a black woman. That you could get away with, um, oftentimes with terrible consequences for the black woman. Um, But it was illegal to get married. That was the way you frame that too was quite
1: well that was interesting because that was i'm trying to find that page mm. it was a convention of colored men of texas um oh that they were trying to get the law change which of course didn't happen but they were trying to make it illegal they were trying to make interracial sex as illegal as interracial marriage um which of course didn't mm. didn't happen um why can't I find this page where that was? But of course the reverse, you know, if a black man had been having a relationship with a white woman, you know, he would have been killed. So Mm -hmm. there are multiple Mm -hmm. double standards there.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a very illuminating historical sort of context that it was a a group of colored men in Texas um, who were advocating for these laws and apparently didn't get very far. Um, There's another, let's see, section on page I was interested in, page 32, where the color blue comes up. Um, Maybe I'll read the first two lines. Um, No, is it page 32? Yeah, in Bob Hubbard's diaries, The silences speak louder than what's said. So I developed a practice of reading for absence, Um, you say. So can you say more about reading for absence? Oh, this isn't my question about blue. Oh, that comes right before this. Yeah, I wanted to get that. Yeah, so the poem on page 32, is that a poem? It's um, a large chunk of text. Uh, How would you describe that passage and what does Blue have, how did Blue come in here?
1: Yeah, it's a prose poem as a lot of the poems in the book are. Um, And I developed that actually in a workshop as a, this was a recommendation of my fellow fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, Meg Wade, who I think I had maybe started writing these prose blocks. And then she was like, this works, this form works really well because it's sort of strangling sort of strangling the content they're very constrained right um these justified prose blocks so blue honestly I came I arrived at blue because I'm associated with red I mean I wear red a lot and in my prior book there's a woman in red throughout the whole book who's very closely associated with me and I didn't want to confuse Peggy with myself or Stark just start because ha- the easiest thing to write a character is to have the character be you right so i didn't i was trying to avoid doing that so i gave her a distinct color which is blue um i don't know did you want me to read that one sure peggy rises out of sleep through the dream called blue where all her kin folks are wading through fields of blue Even her father left in Georgia, her stillborn brother somehow grown, her niece who stumbled into the fire on Christmas day and died with the vision of her white dress aflame, the aunt or uncle who ran off or was lost forever to the auction block. They are all wearing blue, blue hats, blue shawls, and in the way they sing a song with no words deep from the gut, there is also blue. And bluely she creeps toward them in her calico blue. And now there is a dance. They are partnering for the quadrille, And the man they called Bo Peep cradles a banjo, strikes a tune blue. And her petticoat starched with hominy water and Pris's too. And every time they stop moving for a second, the petticoats pop. And Priss giggles. And in Priss's eyes are flecks of blue. The log train shakes her into waking black then dark blue. And she reaches for her kerchief blue and she is stumbling toward the cradle blue and cooing shoo shoo to the baby who is hollering now. One Sunday the preacher prayed, Lord let us all go to heaven where there'll be no log train. Hoo 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 and a clankety clank who's black smoke curling into the half blue. Um... I was on a, I was a respondent on a panel about blues and verse a few years ago, and I realized in preparing the response, and actually read this poem, that it sort of had these qualities of blues, I mean, including like the the train, the presence of the train. And I think that although I wasn't thinking about it when I picked that color, the way the blues is both... um, Sorrow and joy, the sort of emotional nuance of the blues, I guess, is also um, pertinent here. So there's another way in which that color resonates.
0: Yeah. It really evokes a scene in time, I feel like. Um, if I th- I'd have to look at it again, but it seems like this is sort of something happening in a moment. And there's some music and dance and banjos and petticoats and um uh quadrille dancing uh so somehow it it feels like it gives us a little glimpse into a a moment in time uh in uh in a slave's life or uh, somebody who had been a slave uh I wanted to say something else about that, but, um, Oh, maybe this, maybe this is where the the question about joy comes in because in your acknowledgments you, you acknowledge something. I don't have it in front of me about how maybe in writing these kind of works, you tell me if I got this right or wrong, but you, one wouldn't want just for it to be about slavery as a state of abjection, but that there was, yeah. it could also be joy.
1: Yeah, and actually, that poem was directly in response to that. So, yeah, that's a good connection. Mm-hmm. So, that was from Lyrae Van um, Clive Stefanon. I hope I'm not butchering her name. But she was uh, on the, she's a poet on the faculty of um, the Cave Canem Retreat for Black Poets, The um, one of the summers I was there. And she gave us, I think the exercise was called Let Me Has Been or something. But she, she specifically had us think about um, joy throughout history in Black history. And it so happened that that week was the week that the, um, you know, the massacre in the, the Black church in Charleston. Mm-hmm. And she sort of made the point, like, look at everything that's going on now. And Cave Canem is in it, too, this space for, for Black poetry. And so... Yeah, and she she was the one who said, like, don't buy into narratives of abjection. And I think that was a really interesting challenge to imagine um, how Peggy might have experienced moments of joy and pleasure or delight um, within the the constraints of her life. And the other big influence in thinking about that is Alice Walker's essay, um, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Where she talks about Black women throughout history exercising their creativity within the constraints of their lives, and she uses as, a, as an example her mother, who was a sharecropper, who had extraordinary gardens, and her gardens were were works of art, and people would come all over to to see them, and that was how she practiced her creativity. And so I sort of found ways to to sort of imagine both joy and and creativity, it's sort of it's sort of an act of agency in Peggy's life.
0: I think it's really important. It's making me think one of the books I read this year was, was it, um, by Carol Anderson. I hope i yeah, she's a historian, black historian, white rage. And it's, it's a, it's a, a very important book. Probably a lot of people know it, but um, it's very difficult to read because it's kind of a chronicle of atrocity after atrocity committed by white people on black people. And, um, so, uh, I like this uh, <laughs> this other way of trying to look into Black history too that you're you're doing in this this book, and maybe we should. Um, this is where I guess I could ask my question about the um, your practice of reading for absence. Uh, okay. Can you say more about that?
1: So that's on the next page you were looking at, I think. Yeah, page three. Yeah, so I was talking about that was sort of specifically within the context of the diaries. Um, and like I said, I became really fascinated by what was being left out because um Bob Hubbard would talk to him quite a lot about his kids, but never mentioned they were his kids. Um, including his son Plunk, lively Plunk, who is obviously very close to. And we actually have a picture, the picture's in the book of him with Plunk. Hmm. Um And he, he was, you know, working with him on the farm, like all the time, (laughs) you know, and there was actually one entry written by Plunk in Hubbard's diary, but he never says it's his kid um, or that any of his children are his children. Although he'd say like, he'd point out who his white relatives were. Mm -hmm. He would say like my niece or my brother who, you know, he would say who they were in relation to him. And Peggy, he mentions that she used to be my cook Priscilla, her sister, he mentions, Pris Thorpe, um, a number of times, who had also had children by him, and he never says who they are to him, or like, why he's spending all this time with this, you know, <laughs> plunk. Um, and I think I was really fascinated by that, partly. Um, and so it was, I did feel like what wasn't being said was actually saying more in, in a way than what was being said.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah. Um there's another moment later in the book where what, uh, was it an ob- obituary of, um, uh, Hubbard's where it says that he was married, um, to a, to a white, his first wife who was white.
1: It's not really it an obituary. Cause it oh. actually was like 20 years ago. Oh, uh-huh. the sons of Confederate veterans, um, decided to rebury. <laughs> when I first heard the story, I didn't believe it, but it turned out to be true. They decided to rebury um, Bob's remains and his first wife that there wasn't really very much left at that point to rebury. But anyway, they had this whole ceremony around it. And, um, and in the newspaper, the local coverage of this um, ceremony or this event, is is what you're referring to? Um, it says Virginia Captain Hubbard's wife died as a result of childbirth, and he lamented her death and never remarried for the remainder of his life. And by the time I read that, like that was kind of late in my <laughs> my research and my like I was it shouldn't have been I shouldn't I, I was surprised and it made me really angry to read that because none of this should have been surprising at that point. Mm-hmm. But I felt like in writing Peggy out like he wrote or this the the article wrote me out or wrote my whole family out of Mm. of (laughs) it's like we don't exist then (laughs) um and and I found that that pretty infuriating
0: yeah that's really shocking (laughs) Peggy I guess lived her entire life with this man pretty much um, until she died, as far as we know, or until he died, I guess.
1: I don't know. She, um, so in the 1880 census, they're living as one household. And really interestingly, their children are listed as his. Um, oh. And as, so, you know, he's listed as white, she's listed as black, and then all their children are listed as his children in relationship to the head of household um, and are listed as mulatto. So I actually thought that was pretty interesting because he acknowledged um, them <laughs> for that purpose, apparently, and and actually acknowledged his daughters and that he sent them all to school. Um, and the story was that at least his daughters by Peggy, except for one who chose not to go. But my grandfather's story was always that he sent them all to school because he didn't want them working in no white man's kitchen because he knew what would happen then, as mm-hmm. he did, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um So, yeah, I don't know that if Peggy lived with him um, for the rest of her life. In the diaries, which are in in the early, like the 1889 through 1894, it seems like she has her own place. Like he would say I went up to, he mentions going to Peggy's to do various things. (laughs) Like he bore her a a well and um, plant things there. So I'm not sure like where exactly she was, if it was a little spot on his land or I'm not sure about that.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Um on the subject of people being left out, I actually at the beginning of your book you talk about um one of your Bob's ancestors was was married to somebody else who had an estate, was it called Turnwald, a famous estate and in... it
1: was Bob's sister was married to a descendant of the family that yeah.
0: And that estate, that plantation for some reason I was interested and I looked it up and I found a passage which talked about this plantation and these white people who had made it into one of the greatest plantations in the South. And I was thinking it wasn't the white people who made it a great plantation. Mm. It was all the slaves who made that, um, who turned it into a wealthy, but they were left out of it. Just, I don't know, more to that your was, point.
1: So I read that that, that plantation, or rather the enslaved people who lived there, were the source of the Uncle Remus stories. And the mm-hmm. the guy who wrote it had now I can't remember, worked there or visited there or been there in some capacity. Mm. Then later I talked to a scholar who said nobody really knew where those stories came from. So I don't know if that's true uh-huh. or not, but I think it's an interesting
0: I would add another way in anecdote. which the plantation <laughs> yeah. The plantation was made great not just economically, but literarily through possibly the Uncle Remus stories um, because of the the Black people who lived there. Well, speaking of Black people and white people, uh, let's see, which page is this? Page 50. Um, I really liked how, I guess this would be like a memoir kind of section a little bit, but um, you kind of poetically... um, sort of reference your own identity. And at one point, I think there's a couple, I'll just quote you, uh, quote, in Madison, I became black. Um, And then on the same page, you say, aren't I a white girl on the phone? And it's um, because your mother was white and your father was black. And there's an interesting way you play with identity here in a very poetic way where it seems like almost under some social context, you appear as black and another social context, like being on the phone, you appear as, as white. Do you, do you wanna say anything about that section?
1: Um, I guess when I was talking earlier about how sort of the present converged with the past, this was sort of one of the places where I felt like that happened. Um, And the context for that, in that essay, um, I was writing right after the killing of Tony Robinson, who was an unarmed black teenager who was killed by a Madison police officer. And I was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. And I found out somewhere in the reportage, they 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 were calling him the unarmed black man. And then at some point it was revealed that he had a white mother and I also have a white mother um, and for, I think a lot of my life, I felt like race or the way I inhabit race is um, contextual or um, geographic almost, hmm. you know, I, I know you from LA where I think I was, I was sort of an ethnically ambiguous Brown person and the same when I lived in New York city. Um, And in Pittsburgh, is a bit different because Pittsburgh is more of a black and white, predominantly, city with fewer other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And Madison was a very extreme version of that because Madison is extremely white. And I I was, I found it, I'm going to be honest, I really did not like living there. (laughs) I think it's pretty apparent in the book, but Mm -hmm. um, it was very, very white. And I think that that was... um, I, I, yeah, I, it was like, I, I don't know how another way to say it, in Madison, I've become black, where it, it became um, inescapable, I guess, because that's sort of what that essay is about, inescapability. Um, but I also say later, I, you know, it, the right to blackness always felt unearned, which is where I get into the question of aren't I a white girl on the phone. And in fact... I went to a doctor. I guess this was a couple years ago, a few years ago. I, like, made a doctor's appointment on the phone um, for a new ophthalmologist or something. And I got to the appointment, and without asking my race, they had just checked off white. <laughs> they assumed, based on my voice, that I was white. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that. So, so I think it is... The way I inhabit race is kind of contextual. Um, and I think in recent years, I felt... Uh, both sort of more included in blackness, and this was partly because of Cave Canem, that retreat for black poets, because there were so many ways of being a black poet represented there. But also, like, um, and it was, and and it's partly this question of geography. Like, it's not something you really get to choose. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I think it's you're, you're touching on just a really interesting question about about identity and um, the long debates about is is there something is, is black an essential character or is it a socially constructed? Is race socially constructed or essential? But you do it so in this beautiful, poetic way. I mean, there's you've, there's very little text on these pages. But what's there is beautiful and it really goes to the heart of this question. I but I wanna move on. Yeah, or what I do you was want to say, about say?
1: That was one of the more painful parts to write, I think, because it I mean, I sort of very openly talk about my own internalized racism and it's one thing to sort of talk about the past. Um, and another thing to sort of expose one's own in our struggles with these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's another sort of exposure of inner sort of issues, which um, so I'll, I'll um, keep in mind what you said at the beginning, that the memoir, you, you hesitate to call it a memoir because in the same way, it's not exactly history. The memoir is not always, um, I guess, what you meant was factually um, exact. But there's a passage on page 67 that. Um, This gets to a question about trauma, but um, I'm going to read this paragraph, I think. My lover left me because I was impossible to read. I think I would have fallen in love with you, she said, if I could see my emotions reflected on your face. But I am as, and this is you speaking, I am as inscrutable as chalk. The lover who left me is white. She studies epigenetics, which suggests that external factors can affect gene expression the question of ancestral trauma looms large. I wanted to reach for those scars, parentheses, cards, but did not. How many centuries on the auction block? Um, So there's a lot here, but um, I I guess I just wanted to point out one thing I I liked was how you weave in and out of your own story, your own um, almost sort of confessional expressions. uh, But then we get to this question of um, how trauma can be transmitted across generations, how many centuries on the auction block. And that really struck me as a psychologist. Um, what are the effects when you have generations of people who've been on the auction block? Um, how does that, the consequences of that reverberate um, into the present, bleeds into the present, I guess, as... as um yeah. It speaks in your... The, the Especially backstory. since
1: it's not very many generations.
0: Like, mm. if you, you know,
1: if you think about that...
0: Uh-huh. Mm. You mean not many generations ago? But,
1: right, yeah. Between me and Peggy, that's not a lot of generations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Peggy was your great-great-grandmother?
1: Right. My grandfather's grandmother, so... Mm-hmm.
0: Um, let's see, we've got to sort of move towards closing here, but, um, I think there was something I was curious about. I wanted to hit on before we close, which was, um, in the acknowledgements and, um, (laughs) this was an interesting poetic volume because I found myself reading everything, including the, the notes, end notes, I guess you call them. And then the acknowledgement, pages and pages of acknowledgements, but that were extremely readable um, and sort of, I don't know, felt like I was carrying on somehow um, the body of the book all the way through to the end of the acknowledgements. But one of the acknowledgements, you mentioned that a woman named Tana Welch, um, who gave you some comments on the next to final draft, um, resulted in a better ending for the book Mm -hmm. and made you consider quote, how despite your best intentions or how despite my best intentions, I continue to perpetuate the very frameworks I am so intent on resisting. So what were these frameworks you were attempting to resist?
1: So she, I'd sent her a full draft of the manuscript just as I was preparing to send it to publishers. Um, And I'd like already written a cover letter, everything. And originally the, book ended on Bob. It ended on um, there's a prose poem that's opposite the photograph of Bob and Plunk. It's on page 86. Um, and that had always and it's from Bob's perspective. And that had always been the ending. Like I wrote it in maybe 2014. 2014 and that <laughs> was the ending till 2018. And um, Tana was like, isn't this Peggy's book? Should it end on Peggy? And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. So I reordered the ending, and it ends on a poem in Peggy's voice now, which is much more appropriate um, and much more powerful. So that was um, and that that was it. That was the framework. <laughs> like the whole book of like I'm yeah. trying to to imagine Peggy's voice and Peggy's life and sort of um, give her space. And yet i I was going to um, and give Bob the last word.
0: Yeah, it's so hard not to fall into these um, st- <clears throat> being structured by um, s- s- contexts, and Bob was the one who wrote and wrote diaries and wrote the history, so to speak, um, and is extremely influential in how we resist the written words and try to get beyond them of, yeah, anyway, this, you did so well in this book. Maybe just to end, there's a beautiful cover. Can you tell us about the cover image on the book?
1: Yeah, that was by the artist, uh, Sarah Stefana Smith, who I met at a residency in 2018. Um, And her work is really interested in, I mean, she does these, these, she calls them abstract, which I guess just means non-representational, but to poet means something different. So we have a lot of conversations about that because it seems quite concrete to me. It's, you know, you can touch it. But anyway, um, she makes these abstract installation pieces sort of around lines of demarcation around race and the history of race is sort of haunting and embodiment Um, And that I found that when I saw her work, like she just had an open studio at the residency that like our work was really in conversation and we started talking about it. Um, And we started working toward a a future installation in conversation with dissent. Actually, this is not from that. This is an earlier work. But um, we started working on it. Uh, right before everything shut down, <laughs> our, our, our work was interrupted by COVID. But I think she's been independently making some pieces. So hopefully, um, in the future, when it's possible to to reconvene, we'll be able to resume work on that and, and install it somewhere eventually. Um, yeah. So that she's the artist.
0: And on the inside cover of your book, or it says, um, I guess, the title of. The piece is Mend, two thousand eighteen, from series. A forward slash mends, mends materials: blackbird netting, fishing line, and black thread. Um, and it's a uh, the cover of your book is black and white. Um, it's mostly a, a white cover with this um, this image on it, and then the words Lauren Russell Descent. And incredibly beautiful book. I'm so honored to be able to, to sort of talk to you about it. And so glad we had the chance. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Philip. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Lauren Russell about her book, Descent, here at New Books and Poetry, a channel on the New Books Network. Um, feel free to contact me at philipjlance, philip has one l at gmail.com, to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. Thanks for listening.